Welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on the old Snapchat and you can follow the man behind it all Mr. Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter but for the show today and we're back to interviewing and what an incredible guest we have on the show for you today as we have Edith Harper joining the show today. Edith is the founder and CEO at Launch Darkly, the startup that allows you to fearlessly and swiftly release software by separating feature rollout from code deployment. They've raised over 10 million dollars in funding from many previous guests of the 20 minute V including Andy McLaughlin at Softech, Josh Stein at DFJ, and the wonderful team at Bloomberg Beta. As for Edith, prior to launch Darkly, she was a director of product at Tripit and Concur. Edith also holds two patents in deployment from her time in engineering at Vignette. I'd also like to say a big thank you to Doug Pepper at Shasta and Josh Stein at DFJ for the intro to Edith today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360-degree view of their reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all SASTA listeners. Simply head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. But it's now time for me to shut up and I'm delighted to hand over to Edith Harbuck, founder and CEO at Launch Darkly. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Edith, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Josh at DFJ for making the intro. But thank you so much for joining me today, Edith. It's great to be here. I'd love to get started though today by discussing a bit about you and how you made your way into the wonderful world of SaaS and came to found Launch Darkly. <laughs> well, that's a great question because uh, I was doing software before there was SaaS. I started off as an engineer where we just shipped software once a year and we were actually considered fast because everybody else shipped it every three years. Classical software engineer, got some patents on deployment, decided that I was far smarter than my product manager, <laughs> uh, as all engineers do. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> was a product manager and realized how hard product management was because there are so many forces in the world in terms of prospects you don't see when you're an engineer market trends, everything else going on. Was a very successful product manager most recently at TripIt, where I started their TripIt for Enterprise. We were acquired by Concur. Just decided that there were a lot of things I'd seen over my time in software that I thought a product could fix. Uh, and that's how I started Launch Darkly. And I want to start, though, today with a common love of both of ours. And I'm slightly embarrassed to say this. I've just run a London marathon, which I'm very proud of. Uh, you've run many marathons, and even, as you just said to me before the call, 100 miles. So... <laughs> With that in mind, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how training for marathons is really like a startup. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the joke is I could talk about running for forever because I can run for forever. Um, <laughs> I think they're similar and different. Like, I actually I hate the saying that it's a marathon, not a sprint, because a marathon is actually pretty easy. So you can get up and do a marathon in like four or five hours and go about your day. Running 100 miles takes a lot more effort. 
there's all the training, there's all the sleep deprivation, there's all the actual time on your feet. But how they are similar is just this idea that you're doing something that's not easy, that you're going to dedicate some time to, to putting something together that is going to take up a lot of your life, is going to take up a lot of your energy. And to be honest, uh, particularly running 100 miles that you might not succeed at. So it's it's hard, but it's fun. One, one element that I'd love to discuss is when I was training, it was very much about kind of having a vision for the finish line and a vision for the ending, just like there's a vision with every startup. But I recently interviewed David Steinberg at Zeta Global, and he told me that vision is a transient element that founders can essentially mold to their own circumstance with time. Do you agree with this kind of transience of vision? I think that the difference between a startup and a race is that there's no vision of a finish line in a startup. Like, so, so I'll give you a real example. Like, so when you're at mile 21 or 22 of, of a marathon, you could be like, okay, I only have four more, mile, four more miles. You can kind of have this burned down clock in your mind. When you're doing a startup, there's no finish line. Like even, um, so Josh Stein has been a wonderful investor to us. And so he was, he led the series A of Box, you know, they IPO'd and they're still, they're still doing great, but there's no like firm. Okay. We got our A and now we're done. We got our B and now we're done. It's just, you're, you're running a company and that's not something that finishes. Absolutely. It's an evergreen project, but, but staying on the marathon theme, because why move away from running? The first step is, is often the hardest. Uh, another commonality with running a startup. So, so bearing that in mind, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the theory behind getting your first 10 customers and then scaling up to a hundred customers and maybe how you've done it differently with, with each project. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm a huge fan of Jason Lemkin and I actually really liked his blog post. He wrote about how the first 10 customers are the hardest. And I really think they are because at the beginning, you're iterating in so many different directions at the same time. What are you building? Who are you building it for? What's your pricing? How are you going to go get customers? And you're trying to do this all at the same time. And oh, and by the way, if anybody more established than you was doing what you were doing, customers would buy it from them. Like no customer wakes up and says, hey, I'm going to buy this flaky product from an unknown startup. So you have to really be filling some deep need Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. For, they, otherwise, they would just go buy it from like IBM or use a Facebook widget or, or whatever fits their need. Mm-hmm. So the first 10 customers are definitely the hardest. And my theory is I am not a believer at all in stealth. I am a believer that you should be as public as possible about what you're doing because that will, A, inform your distribution strategy because it's like, okay, here's how I'm getting customers. And then, B, let people know that you're doing something. And if they're interested, they can tell you that they're interested. So if, long- if, if you're very public and don't go in stealth and so you produce a product and it's very, very public, and then it doesn't hit in terms of it doesn't get market traction, and then you have to very publicly pivot again. It's much more difficult than if you stay in stealth and then realize and you can iterate within a very closed sandbox. I think most startups are in stealth with it's <laughs> just because the, the world is so noisy and nobody's heard of them. I think most startups, like I think like nine out of ten never never get you know, never get any funding, never get any traction. So you're inadvertently in stealth. Like I was working at a plant sensor company as their first product manager. And I thought they were deliberately in stealth because they had such an awful website. And then they, they said, hey, are we gonna, when are we going to do the real website? And they're like, oh, this is a real website. And I was like, oh, you, you all are terrible at websites. <laughs> good, good start. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had, um, they had a flash landing page that wasn't SEO'd at all. So literally you went to the website and you would watch a bird landing on a tree. And that was their website. Stunning UI. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to copy it for my own site. Uh, but but I, I, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of the, the strategy and the steps behind the zero to 10 customers then. Like the actual mechanics behind it and how you did it with launch starkly and and the previous projects so the zero to ten is absolutely the hardest as i said if you're unstable you're unknown 
and whether you like it or not, you are in stealth. So the example you just gave of like publicly launching, even then, like, even if you're the biggest public launch in the world, like there's still a lot of people who have never heard of you. So zero to 10 is absolutely the hardest. So what, what we did at LaunchDarkly is I first LaunchDarkly is actually the third idea that my co-founder and I tried. So the other two ideas, we tried it before and I came to the conclusion that I could not get customers for the, the, the prior two ideas. So I had been trying hard and I was like, I finally told my co-founder, John, like, I think we could build the thing that we're building. I don't think I can bring this to market. And I think it was good that we learned that pretty easy. I mean, pretty early before we'd put too much effort into building it. Cause I said, this is great, but nobody wants it. So the third idea, which was LaunchDarkly and LaunchDarkly, by the way, helps software teams uh, reduce risk and deliver value quicker. It's a way where you can push out features to different parts of your own user base and then control that accessibility. Mm-hmm. So it's something that I had used at prior jobs and we'd always had to build in-house. And I had this idea that we could build this as a service. So I just went and talked to everybody I knew. Like I, I talked to all my old coworkers. I talked to people I met at parties and we got some people who said, hey, that's interesting. Why don't I use that? And the first two customers, honestly, were not really customers. They were just my friends who I think had kind of taken pity on me. <laughs> would, you, would you agree with Jason that the first 10 unaffiliated and non-friend customers is a sign of kind of the first pre-success or essential, the earliest signs of product market fit? Yes. But so our first customers were absolutely affiliated, but they were very helpful because they would use the product and, you know, it was early, it was buggy, it was hard to install, and they helped us past all that. So they installed it, they used it, they helped us find bugs. And then what we did is I I started blogging about what we were doing, and then we started getting people who were unaffiliated. And I would get on the phone with them, and I would ask them what they were looking for. And I was very careful that I wasn't trying to sell them anything. I would just go into a lot of customer discovery, and I'd say, what are you looking for? What do you want in a system? And I started hearing that they wanted exactly what we were building. This would make me so excited. And I would say, you're a perfect fit, and then they would start using our system. So the first first 10 unaffiliated basically all came because we had our first nucleus of affiliated customers who we could talk about who had you know kind of battle-hearted us a little bit mm-hmm. and then we had that base that we could talk about and then people just started finding us inbound but absolutely i had in my mind um because jason had come out with his blog post and i'd read it that the 10 unaffiliated were the most important mm-hmm. in terms of kind of moving upstream he's also always said to me that the one to two million error range although possible is potentially one of the most painful. Is this something that you think you corroborate now having been through with LaunchDarkly? I think every startup is painful. And I say that in a most loving way because I love pain. I run 100 miles. Mm-hmm. Of course you um, do. You must. <laughs> <laughs> but I think startups are always hard. Like advice I got from our advisor, Sean Burns, is like the stuff you do from zero to one is different than the stuff you do from one to 10. And that's different from the stuff you do from 10 to 100. So we've cracked the 2 million ARR and now we're going after, you know, higher goals, but it's, it's still hard. You're still trying to figure stuff out, but it's a different kind of hard because you do, as I, I do agree with Lemkin, you do have uh, momentum behind you. You do have customers who are using you. You do have proof points that you can point to to other customers. Can, can I ask a question? You mentioned your previous product projects there. I'm always intrigued between the balance between vision and, and stubbornness. So when they potentially weren't working, how can founders, if you were to advise founders of when to stop and when to iterate on their product how do you balance between vision for for going for what you believe in and then actually a stubbornness in in what's not working oh that's so hard with the prior ones it was just really clear to john my co-founder and and myself that like you know the 
isn't this isn't quite working. And I was kind of scared to, to talk to him because I am very stubborn. And I was like, hey, what do you think about putting this this one idea, you know, kind of on pause for a little bit and then going to work for this one? And I thought it would be a long discussion, but John is just like, I completely agree. More like, great, let's sort do this other thing. Let's, let's do something else. Yeah. Whereas like for our current idea launch, Sharkly, I mean, we've been working on it full time for three years. And the thing that gives me the most momentum is how excited customers are about it. Yeah. Like, um, so our NPS is 50, which made me extremely happy for an enterprise product. And when I talk to them, they talk about how it makes their lives better and how it, it, it changes the way they build software for the better. It eliminates a lot of risk and it makes them feel better about what they're building. And that makes me so excited as a, as a, as an engineer that we're actually helping them. And so I always feel like we're on the right path. In terms of MPS benchmarking, if I were to say to you, your target, that you, your upper end of the spectrum that you'd love to reach and then a warning sign that will get you worried, what would that be? Oh gosh. I think, so I'm a huge fan of NPS. I think if nothing else, it tells you where you are. Mm -hmm. I think anytime you're in negative territory, you have to be extremely worried because that means that there are actively people in market who do not like your product and are saying bad things about it. I I think far more than that, I think NPS is a scaler, which is just a number. I think what's far more valuable is not just the raw number, but why people feel that way. So when I've worked on products that have a, a lower NPS that we're trying to bring up, what's really important is digging into why people aren't promoters. And then, and then you can get into all sorts of deeper analysis, like what's the actual spread? You know, do you have a stubborn bump of sixes, which are just kind of, you know, basically kind of detractors, or do you have a huge lump of ones, which are people who actively hate you? What have you found in your past experience? It's really product by product. I think to me, it comes down to really the qualitative of why you have this number. Is it something that people just actively don't like? Is it something that they feel is buggy? Is it something they don't agree with? Is it something they feel like they're being forced to use? Like why, why are they giving this score as actually i think far more useful than absolutely in, in, in driving improvement you've got to know why yeah no i agree but but staying on the kind of theme of differing projects and categories actually itself you said before that b2b companies are surprisingly more personalized than b2c in their selling and targeting something potentially unexpected so i'm intrigued what makes you say this for the personalization of b2b over b2c oh most recently i was product director at TripIt, and we had 10 million users at the time so the way we conducted NPS surveys, the way we did user research was very different. I mean, we had enough users that we could do, you know, A-B testing. We had enough users that it was actually an issue that we would do surveys and we'd have to segment to get down to a small enough sample that we could manage. Most B2B businesses do not have 10 million users unless you're absolutely huge like Microsoft. So with B2B businesses, you have the luxury of doing stuff like a lot more phone interviews, a lot more really getting into the heads of your an individual user as opposed to kind of grossing up personas. Would you say this is exclusive to enterprise B2B compared to kind of SMB where you might have 40,000 customers and actually kind of providing that deep touch point is quite challenging? Yeah, I think it's all a matter of scale in terms of whether, you know, like to to your example, if if you have 100,000 users, you do have to kind of say, okay, here are the commonalities between them all versus a B2B with maybe you have 10,000. I mean, that's a factor of four. And that means that you can basically get more hands-on with each customer. Do you think the rise of bottoms up selling has affected the personalization kind of with that direct touch point to to the consumer who's also the enterprise buyer almost today with most people having credit card buying power? I think what has changed absolutely is from, from the time I started off was, so I said that we used to do a release every year and that was considered fast. And we used to do a release every year and customers 
would have to go install that on their own hardware. And actually, you know, we'd have a supported platform matrix of, you know, that you can run this on Oracle, but not this version of Sybase. And that meant that from us writing a line of code to customer actually seeing it on their own systems was usually about, even with their release schedule, about a year and a half to two years. Because we would build something, we would put it on our site for download. People would then download and install it and upgrade their system. And then they put it to their users. Yeah. What has absolutely changed now is that with SaaS and the rise of the cloud, that you don't have to install it on your own systems, which means that you could do stuff like a free trial. And in the old days, you were really trying to per- basically per- persuade an IT department that they could install your software. And so you're really trying to sell to the IT department that this could solve some business need. Now you can bypass that, and the business user can just go to your site and say, hey, I want to try this, and if I like it, I'll put down a credit card. So you've basically started selling directly to the user instead of the middle person, which used to be an IT department. Absolutely removing that barrier. Yes, and that has absolutely changed software. I think fundamentally for the better. But but I would I would love to dive into a quick fire round with you called Edis sixty second Sasta just for you. Okay, how does that sound? Uh, that sounds fabulous. So let's do based out of Oakland. This one's from Doug Pepper at Shasta, based out of Oakland now and not San Francisco. Why is that, and what are the benefits? <laughs> I love Oakland. Everybody who comes over to our office is really surprised. We have a wonderful office directly on top of Twelfth Street Bart in Oakland. Uh, we have we're on the 14th floor and we have views in every direction and the weather is just nicer than san francisco okay Um, fantastic that's a very worthwhile reason and then another one from uh doug you've got your own fantastic podcast why do you do it and what are the benefits so i do a podcast with paul bigger from uh the circle ci founder called to be continuous on continuous delivery and software trends i like talking with paul and we we hang out and we talk about software a lot and we got the idea that other people might like listening to us and i'm very gratifying when people write us and say that they do like listening and you know that we're helping people understand what's going on with software i think silicon valley can become a total bubble and it's good to talk about what's going on and bigger trends and have that go out to the world and it's like i said it's really makes me happy that people like it no i completely agree uh, it's one of the most gratifying and rewarding things i always find getting getting those kind of letters and emails so i completely agree with you what's your favorite SaaS reading material talk to me when it comes in what gets you running for the sofa to read it i'll have to admit i love saster and that's why i was happy to be part of the podcast it's really hard to start a company like I think there's this myth that you put something out in the world, like what you said, and you instantly get 500,000 customers who pay you a lot of money. And really, there's all the grind before that. And I felt like Saster really got that grind. And like the stuff like the the 10 unaffiliated customers post, I would read that over and over again. Because when you're at customer six or seven, you know, you're still really small. But if you could say, okay, I'm 60% of the way to 10, that seems a lot bigger. So I I really felt like a lot of Jason's Lemkin's posts like gave me perspective that this this day-by-day grind was going to get us to this bigger goal. No, I agree. I think it's uh, writing in a completely kind of aligned way that's quite human. Um, but I'd love to then finish the quick fire on what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Launch Darkly? So one thing I've gotten a lot better at is fundraising investors. I remember when I started out, I didn't know a single investor and it was just this huge black box to me. I thought that you still had to go down to Sand Hill Road and raise you know, $10 million in your A. And what I know now is that you can go a path where you get angels, then get seed money from fabulous investors like Andy at SoftTech who led our seed. And uh, investors are actually very, very helpful. And I just, I didn't understand that dynamic at all when I started because 
I had never seen that side of the business. I'd been, as I said, uh, engineering and product management and not had never raised money before. Absolutely. Listen, as an investor myself, I, I always see the value in investors. <laughs> um, but, but I'd love to move out of the quick fire and to the final element of the interview. And a question from one of your own investors who you mentioned earlier and Josh Stein, who asks, how do you look to build for scale that Fortune 500 companies can trust at scale when you're still such a young and small company? As you said earlier, I think, in terms of being very difficult when you are so young. Yeah, so I guess this goes back to a ton of unaffiliated customers. I think it's helpful to get affiliated customers first who will be friendly and help you shake out a lot of your issues. And then the more customers you get, it kind of it basically becomes... A self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It's like, you know, like for us, we have extremely large customers. We, we serve 10 billion features every day. Wow. Yeah, every day. So it's, it's reassuring when we go talk to new customers because they always are kind of sheepish and they're like, we have a lot of scale. Can you handle, you know, 2 million? And, you know, you, you want to be polite, but you're like, 2 million? I don't think, you know, like we serve 10 billion. Like, <laughs> like, how, does it, like how does it compare selling to uh, small startups compared to mega Fortune 500 companies? Completely different and yet the same. Mega companies care very much about stability and security. Like, so we were, we've sold to some mega corps and what they care about is, is this going to, is, is this going to make me look good? Part one. Like, am I going to look like a hero for bringing in this solution? And is this going to look bad if it goes down? And startups, I think, are a bit more chaotic and not so stability-driven, though, of course, they do care about it. But at a big company, there's just more and more and more and more factors that all lead them up to, you know, can I can I rely on this vendor? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It makes sense. How have you structured your sales team to to manage both the, the small SMB clients and then the large six-figure deals with Fortune 500 companies? So we actually have a now account executives. When we started out, we thought we were going to be completely self-serve. My co-founder had come out of Atlassian. I had most recently been a TripIt. So I had this idea that we would be a credit card self-serve product. This ended pretty much with our first unaffiliated customer. Because <laughs> he said, um, and he was great, he was a director of engineering at a large company. He said, you know, to use you, I actually have to do an annual contract. That's just the way our company's set up. And I kept saying, like, can't you just put a credit card down? He's like, no, this is just not the way that we buy software. We need to have an annual contract so that we know that we can rely on you. It needs to go through this process. And that was an eye-opener to me that like I'd had this idea that people don't want salespeople. And I, I realized that people do want salespeople. They want salespeople because they have their own processes to buy in software that they want help navigating. Like we've actually like, so we've had customers write us. They're like, okay, we finished our trial. We want to buy. We need a salesperson to help us navigate our own buying process. Like, which is basically its own project management of, you know, go talk to procurement, go talk to the security review and go manage all the vendor paperwork. And that's not something that your buyer knows how to do. I mean, they, they know it vaguely, but they need somebody else to go navigate the path of their own company. And they're like, and also, by the way, can you co- provide some collateral so that I can bring everybody else on my team on board? So I think a good, a good salesperson is basically continually showing value of the product itself and helping buyers navigate their own company's processes. Final question then, with that kind of uh, knowledge of the product itself and the deep intricate knowledge, would you always advocate for an engineering-led sales team? I think the most important thing for a salesperson to have 
is empathy. And I, I know like, so we just, I just went and visited some prospects and they were talking about different testing environments and how it was painful to them to have releases where they would have test on one environment and then release on another and have stuff break in between. And this is actually an area that I know a ton about. I, I um, this is actually something I got some patents on. And like I said, I bet you have pain points around keeping these two environments in sync. I bet users are frustrated because you're pointing them at a test environment. I, I think that you actually want to reduce risk and have everybody just have one environment on production. And the, the guy I was talking to looked at me and he said, did, did you spy on our meeting yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, this is, I feel like you're in the, I feel like you've been in the room with us when we've been talking about all these things. And it was because I had the, this deep empathy that all these pain points I'd felt myself in, in, in releasing software. And I, I think that's something that's independent of whether you're engineering led or not, but just an understanding that the reason why you build software is not to build software. The reason why you build software is to solve somebody else's pain. Absolutely. No, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. But as, as you know from my stalking with the questions from Doug and Josh, uh, I did my homework and I was told it would be a fantastic episode, but it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Edith. Uh, I look forward to running many hundred miles with you. Just kidding. Uh, well, Harry, I have, <laughs> I have a final question for you. you. You just finished London Marathon and congrats. When's your next race? What's up for you? I'm actually running the Copenhagen Marathon uh, at the beginning of June. So you're hooked. I am hooked indeed. Yeah, I, I think I have to now. I've got used to the marathon eating habits. So uh, <laughs> if I'm going to sustain this diet, I'm going to have to run. Uh, so indeed I am. But I look forward to running many more with you. But it was such a pleasure to have you on today. And best wishes for Copenhagen, Harry. Well, I look forward to running many more marathons in the future with Edith. And again, I want to say a huge thank you to her for giving up her time today to reveal the incredible journey of Launch Darkly. And again, a big hand to Doug Pepper at Shasta and Josh Stein at DFJ for the intro today to Edith, without which this episode would not have been possible. Also, if you'd like to see behind the scenes at Sasta, you can follow me on at hstebbings with two Bs on Snapchat or the main man, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. But before we leave you today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business. And that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360-degree view of their reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all Sasta listeners. Simply head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.